You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Scammers are attuned at targeting the elderly. They're typically more vulnerable and less comfortable using technology than people who are millennials, let's say. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the CyberWire's Hacking Humans podcast, where each week we look behind the social engineering scams, the phishing schemes, and criminal exploits that are making headlines and taking a heavy toll on organizations around the world. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire, and joining me is Joe Kerrigan from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Got some good stories to share this week. And later in the show, Ari Parker, he's co-founder and head Medicare advisor at an organization called Chapter, and we're talking about Medicare scams. All right, Joe, before we dig into our stories this week, we've actually got quite a bit of follow-up here, don't we? We do. The first one comes from Jay, who writes, Hi, Dave and Joe. You mentioned that Bernie Madoff was taking a vacation at Club Fed, but he finished his day a little early, the only way you can get out early. By passing away while in residence. <laughs> That'll do it. Yeah. Yes, it will. It. I completely forgot that Bernie Madoff had died. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, but uh, Jay goes on to write, this was in reference to the diamond merchant who took advantage of the oil baron for $12 million, which actually reminds me of Victor Lustig, who did a similar scam, but was much smarter about it. He presented a rare potentially lucrative opportunity to Al Capone. Now, I don't know about you, Dave, but if if the opportunity to scam Al Capone comes up, I'm skipping that opportunity. Yeah, I don't know that that's uh, <laughs> wise for your long-term uh, oppor- Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, right. Go on. That may be the last game you pull. But listen, it right. goes on. He says it was pretty audacious given how Mr. Capone dealt with people who crossed him, but he got Mr. Capone to hand over $50,000 for a deal that Mr. Lustig said was planning. Uh, Mr. Lustig then took the money, put it in a safe deposit box, and let it sit. After a period of time, he comes back to Mr. Capone, says the deal fell through. Uh, as a result, I'm completely wiped out. Not really. But don't worry, Mr. Capone. I was able to return every penny of your $50,000. and just gives him his cash back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Mr. Capone said uh, Victor Lustig was one of the few very honest people in his circle of, uh, of friends and said, hey, here, take this $5,000 to tide you over during this time of hopefully temporary insolvency. <laughs> so okay. the, guy, the guy got five grand out of Al Capone, yeah. which is amazing. Wow. <laughs> just for sitting on some money that Capone had loaned him. Yeah, just for sitting on $50,000. Now, I wonder... Well, I I mean, it's the same money, right? He just put it in a safe deposit box. Did he change the bills out? No, no. I mean, who knows? Who knows? Right. But uh, he was, you know, I I like it. It's clever. I mean, it's it's, a good story. Good social engineering story. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. What else do we have, Joe? John writes in to say, thank you, guys. If it hadn't been for your podcast, I might have fallen for this. I just dialed the number on an email I received to talk about a device that had been connected to uh, some system. The number looks very close to a legitimate tech support number from my service provider. And of course, I wanted to know what device they were talking about because I didn't get any new device recently. Hmm. The switchboard, when you call the number, is very much the same and sounds legit. Uh, so I call and I speak to someone named Omar. Omar immediately asked me for my personal details, including my date of birth, my address. Suddenly my hackles go up. <laughs> I realized I'd called the number from the email, not the one on their website. So I asked them where to find the official website so I can call the number. Uh, he says he doesn't know. 
but he sent me, he can send me an SMS to prove that they are who they say they are, which uh-huh. is not going to work. Right. And that, <laughs> our listeners know this. Right. Uh, now, you guys have spoken about smishing, so I knew this wouldn't prove anything. So I insist he tell me where on the website the number ex- exists. Eventually, Omar gives up and hangs up. He immediately right. called the service provider uh, using the number on their website. He went out and found it. Uh, and the agent there confirms that, that number does not belong to them and gives me the information on how, how to file a fraud report. So thank you, guys. If I wasn't a regular Hacking Humans listener, I might have become a victim. Uh, have a virtual handshake and my warmest thanks. Oh, that's very nice. That is good. Good for you, good for you yep. John. I'm glad that, that that worked out well. Yeah. And finally, Richard writes in to say, Hi, Dave and Joe. I have a little experience with the short first email that Romaine Bessett mentioned in your interview last episode. I think this was a couple of inter, uh, episodes ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, we get these emails a little bit later. Uh, I'm in academia, as am I, and members of our research group frequently get phishing emails purporting to be from our PI. PI is principal investigator. That's the person who is responsible for the government grant. Mm. He has a fairly curt email style as people who do a lot of emailing are want to develop. So they do not appear that implausible from him, Mm. which makes sense because we get a lot of these. I get a lot of these as well from from faculty as well. And people Mm -hmm. would be PIs on these things. Uh, I did once reply to one short, but vague request with a clarifying question and got instructions to buy gift cards in response, at which point I told the scammer to try harder next time. They seem to be doing so as they are now using accounts with my PI's profile picture. So these guys have <laughs> gone out and and they have taken this guy's picture off the off the internet. I mean, they're really putting a lot of effort into, into this. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. He wanted to pick up another point on from the interview. Organizations putting in place more process to prevent fraud are often adding additional identifying verification process, but not necessarily doing this well. The more places that introduce requirements like phone numbers, additional forms of ID, and proof of address as fraud prevention measures, the worse it gets in the long run. So now every Tom, Dick, and Harry with excessive know-your-customer requirements has my entire life history on file for the next 30 years so they can show they complied with the requirements. When one of them inevitably gets breached, what am I supposed to do when everything people want me to use to prove I'm me is for sale on a dark web? That's an excellent point. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't know, Richard. That's you know, I'm I'm all about identity, but uh, but Richard goes on. Proper cryptographic identity solutions can't come soon enough, and I agree with that too. I really hope to see some of the things discussed at the Internet Identity Workshop, and then he provides a link, which we'll put in the show notes about self-sovereign or user-centric identity come to fruition as soon as possible before the current mess devolves any further. Um, and I agree. I'm going to take a look at this uh, Internet Identity Workshop. I think that's uh, probably a great place to start. But the idea of a cryptographic key that we can identify, use to identify ourselves, is a great idea. Um, I, maybe even the possibility of going and, and identifying ourselves with somebody we trust, maybe a bank or something, and then having them provide a, a valid, I'm just spitballing here. This is right. me just, this is how I think, Dave. You're actually looking at Joe's <laughs> dream of consciousness right now. Well, I mean, uh, in the same way that we use our driver's license, which, you know, the the state has gone to the trouble to make sure that when getting a driver's license, you can't just get one willy-nilly, right? There's effort right. and you have to prove who you are. So yeah. other people rely on that. They rely on the scrutiny of the state, if we could have a cryptographic equivalent to that, if someone can vouch for our identity, maybe that'll, without having to turn over all this information, 
Right. Uh, maybe that's a good solution. Yeah, I think that's that. And it's got to come at some point in time. That's got to be here because yeah. Richard's point is 100% valid. These people just are amassing all this uh, identifying information because of know your customer requirements. And while they may not be selling it, there may be regulation that prohibits it or there may be ethical concerns. First off, there's a potential that they could sell it. And second off, when it gets breached, no amount of regulation is going to save you from having that information sold uh, right. to to anybody who wants to use it for whatever reason. Uh, yes. It's, it's, uh, it's a, uh, a, a terrible situation. So good point. All right. Well, thanks to everyone for writing in. Uh, we would love to hear from you. If you have something you'd like us to consider for the show, you can mail us at hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. All right, Joe, let's jump into our stories here. Why don't you kick things off for us? I have a story from John Matteris at WCPO in Cincinnati. Hmm. It's very hard for me to say WCPO in Cincinnati without saying WKRP in Cincinnati. And I'm sure John hears that yes. all the time. I'm right? sure he does. God is my witness. I thought turkeys could fly. <laughs> right. For people our age, that's probably yeah. all John ever hears. <laughs> right. How do you not say WKRP? Because I work at WCPO. That's how I talk to it. I'm a yes, professional. Yes. <laughs> uh, but this story actually ties back to your story from episode 200. That was about eight weeks ago. That was from Pixum about a credential uh, stealing campaign on Facebook Messenger. It's it's pretty simple. The way it works is the attack starts with a message from someone the victim knows, but their account has been taken over and it's a bad guy on the other end. And if the victim clicks the link, they are shown an ad and then a page that looks like the login page for Facebook. So it looks like you've been logged out of Facebook and you're asked to log back in after you've been shown this ad. So I wonder if these guys are monetizing this campaign two ways. First, by generating ad revenue, right. you know, hey, if we're going to steal people's credentials, why not make some money in the process? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then going on to uh, convince them that they've logged out of Facebook and they need to log back in again. If you enter your credentials, the bad guy gets control of your account and they send messages to all of your friends. So it is an exponentially expanding uh, uh, campaign. And so far it's hit 10 million people, according to Pixum's hmm. measurements. Wow. Now, now, John Matteris is talking about how this scam has impacted a specific victim here. And her name is Sissy Lowe. And she founded an Elvis page, Elvis fan page on Facebook about seven years ago. And over the past seven years, she has grown this page to 32,000 followers. Mm, wow. That's a big fa- uh, big page on Facebook. Yeah. That's, uh, that's a lot of people. Um so at some point in time, Sissy had her credentials stolen, probably with this campaign, but maybe with another one. It doesn't matter. The effect is the same. And whoever did it immediately took her out of the group, blocked her, and she couldn't get in. Hmm. Uh, so they took her admin status away, kicked her out of the group, and blocked her from the group. Mm-hmm. What? Here's something I think is interesting about this. They did not deny her access to her own account. Hmm. And I'm, I'm wondering why that is. Uh, maybe her account, her actual personal account, is not nearly as valuable as the, as the Facebook page. I, I suspect that might be it. But I'm also suspicious that if they were to take over her page, then she would have more recourse via Facebook. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Uh, and they don't want that. They just want to get the, the, the fan page. They don't care about her personal account. Right, right. I know something that happens with some of these fan page takeovers is they'll they'll mm-hmm. come in and they'll find 
a page like this that has built up a sizable audience. Yes. And then they'll convert it to a completely different topic. Right. Um, and then they'll promote that topic and they'll use the fact that this fan page has so many followers and that makes it seem legit. Right. Because exactly. people That's- get this thing and they're like, oh, this is the, you know, I don't know, uh, this is the acne medication page. And oh my gosh, it's got 32,000 followers. Well, that must be, this must really work. Right, right, exactly. And, let me and let me the way they go. Buy some stuff. She says she believes the hacker is now making money selling the contact information of her followers. I don't know if that's mm. true, but they are definitely posting ads on the page in some way. Uh. Um, the things things I've seen is they take over an account and then they uh, what they do is they just start putting spam ads up in the hope of getting people to click on them and generate some revenue uh, yeah. or links to articles that do something else. It's not good. Uh, or they could do what you say and just convert it to something completely different. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, here's my favorite line from the article. Uh, it says, quote, we contacted Facebook executives hoping they could investigate, but we have not heard back. <laughs> N- no, no kidding. <laughs> you know, I- I'm not surprised. Anytime you have this, it's like screaming into the void. It's, that's my favorite phrase to describe trying to get help from Facebook or Twitter or anything. Uh, The point I want to make today is this. Your Facebook presence has value to these bad guys, especially if you control a large group. Mm -hmm. Your best bet is to protect your Facebook account with some kind of multi-factor authentication, preferably a physical token. Uh, If you use anything that generates a code, I think that is uh, this particular campaign and and targeting people who are admins of these kind of groups – might be enough to incentivize these malicious actors to go out and take the extra effort to try to get that code out of you as well. Yeah. Uh, which they can do with uh, just by asking you for it uh, on their on the web page they control, which they then pass to Facebook and then they take over your account again. Uh, but they can't really do that with the multi-factor authentication device like uh, that is like a YubiKey, but there are lots of other ones out there. Uh, yeah. But they use the FIDO Alliance, which is an open standard, the, uh, the FIDO Alliance standard. Yeah. My wife runs a sizable uh, Facebook page. I want to say it has around 20,000 uh, followers a big one. on it. Yeah. And um, so I, I, I've learned a lot about how these sorts of things work on Facebook through her. Um, when you run a group of that size, you do have – tools that, you know, mere Facebook mortals do not have in terms of managing the the folks in the group and that sort of thing. Um, but I will say that uh, it comes in waves uh, that people try to hammer away at her credentials. You know, she'll, <laughs> yeah, just a couple nights ago, we were sitting uh, on the couch, uh, you know, watching TV or something, and she, she showed me her phone and people were, you know, her, her MFA was being triggered because people were trying to log into her her account trying to take just over brute her forcing account. it yeah credential stuffing yeah. attack probably yeah yeah and and you know it kept coming up you know, is this you is this you here's your here's your you know here's your reset code and she's like oh boy and uh yeah like i said it comes in waves and uh hmm. but it's a pretty common thing and good example good thing she has mfa on there right uh, that seems to do a good job of stopping it so, yeah it does yeah All right. Well, that is interesting for sure. We will have a link to that story in the show notes. Uh, My story this week comes from the folks over at uh, Bloomberg. This is an article written by Jeff Stone. 
uh, and it's titled North Koreans Steal LinkedIn Resumes in Crypto Job Search Scam. So, you know, Joe, as we've been through the pandemic, which uh, mm-hmm. I, I submit uh, we are not yet completely through. We're still <laughs> still making our way through the pandemic. We're but, recording uh, this episode remotely because of that exact reason. That's right. That's <laughs> right. Uh, so um, one of the things that has happened is we've got more and more people who are working remotely. And because of that remote work, scammers are taking advantage of that. Um, before I dig into this story, I've heard stories uh, anecdotally about um, folks who get hired with companies as a developer, uh, mm-hmm. so a very technical job, um, but they will take on four or five full-time jobs, remote jobs, where right. they don't they don't meet anyone. It's all done remotely, but they claim they're going to be the greatest employee ever. Uh, and basically part of the scam is that it takes a few weeks and at least one pay cycle to figure out that the person is scamming them and to fire them. Right. And so if you, and you do have that, to pay them for the work that they've done, right? Right. Because and even if that work that. is terrible. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. So if you can do this, the scam is you, you know, you, you sign up for four or five jobs uh, don't do them very well. Do the minimum amount. Try to string the companies along as long as possible. Oh, I'm getting up to speed. I'm just, you know, I'll, oh, I'm running late, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then by the time they figure it out, uh, they have to pay you. But because you've been running multiple jobs, you can profit. And, right. um, I've heard, I've seen people bragging about the hundreds of thousands of dollars that they brought in through this scam. Um, that is not exactly what's going on in this article. In this article, it's actually uh, folks from North Korea, uh, uh-huh. IT workers there, who have been trying to obtain work with uh, cryptocurrency companies. And they steal the wording, the phrasing from other people's resumes that they find on LinkedIn. And they cook up their own good-looking, good-sounding resume. And they apply for these jobs uh, with the intention of getting inside a company where they will have access to some of the things the cryptocurrency companies work with, uh-huh. uh, you know, virtual they, currencies, tokens, all for that keys kind of stuff. To crypto wallets. Yep, all yep. all that good stuff. Basically, anything they can get their hands on by being an insider is what they're going for here. Uh, and evidently, they're having some success in doing that. Part of it is because people are working remotely, so it's not that unusual to not meet someone person or face-to-face who you may be hiring for a job. I suspect there's even more of that in some of these tech jobs like a cryptocurrency company, right? <laughs> right. Uh, a, a fast-moving startup who is much less likely to have things like office space and, you know, a, a world headquarters, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so really the point of this article is that uh, your training has to include your HR people. And they have to be on the lookout for this sort of thing that you can't assume that someone who's applying for these jobs are doing it in good faith. And even though they may seem to have all the right things on the resume, they may seem to have all the right skills. They may pass all of the the types of tests you put in front of them with flying colors. Uh, It doesn't necessarily mean that they are who they say they are. I'm not sure how much you can protect yourself against this when it's a nation state actor who's coming after you for these sorts of things. Cause the, 
a North Korean actor is going to have presumably all of the paperwork that would look legit, right? Don't you think, Joe? Uh, Dave, that's that's 100% correct. In fact, North Korea, we had Jeff White on the show uh, with Carol Terrio back in episode 201, where he mm. was talking about the North Korean scamming these people, trying to get into these cryptocurrency companies for exactly this purpose. Um, and, and you're right. These guys are really good at what they do. It, it's amazing to me that a, that a country that has no internet infrastructure has a team of of uh, nation state hackers that are as good as they are. Yeah. Uh, they are a formidable force, uh, one to be reckoned with. And because this country is completely isolated financially, they are going after crypto assets, uh, cryptocurrency assets, because that's the, the best way for them to get money. Yeah, yeah, to support the regime, absolutely. Right. All right, well, we will have a link to this in the show notes. Uh, again, I, I think this is an article that... Uh, if you work for an organization where you have folks in HR, this might be a good one to forward yeah, on to them. Just this is this is definitely something your HR people need to be aware of. Uh, it is something that you need to be prepared for, and there needs to be some kind of vetting. And if anything seems fishy, particularly with somebody uh, internationally, I think that's that's a big red flag. I don't I don't know you know I don't know if you're if you're running a one of these currency one of these cryptocurrency companies in South Korea. I don't know how you differentiate. A potential North Korean impersonator. I, I, I think that's a real challenge. Mm-hmm. Uh, I agree. But uh, you know, if you're if you're here in America, there are plenty of uh, of American. Well, actually, there probably aren't pl- plenty of American engineers. Uh, that's one of our problems. <laughs> so you might have to be go going internationally. Uh, so I, I guess everybody has to be aware of this. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, we will have links to all of our stories in the show notes. Joe, it is time to move on to our catch of the day. Dave, our catch of the day comes from John, who writes, saw this and thought it would be a great catch of the day. It's sad that I missed the time window to receive my fund, especially since the email was sent a year late. But it's good that we get to enjoy this message. I particularly love the address of the chairman and CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase. Note that the sending address and the email address at the end do not match. And he's correct. The, uh, <laughs> the sending address was from John Depp with a number of numbers after it, four, four or five numbers after it, which is just some other account that either these guys have set up or taken over. And all the way down at the bottom is the... Uh, is the name uh, with with a different address with a bunch of numbers after it. So, uh-huh. Dave, why don't you read this? Sure. It goes like this. Attention! This is to bring your kind notice that your outstanding payment of $10,500,000, which has been with our central paying office from United Nations, has been signed and approved for payment after a series of meetings with our board of directors. Also, bear in mind that we want to conclude all payment before the second quarter of 2021 runs out for you to receive your fund. Seems a little late to me, Joe. Right. Therefore, yes. to enable us to achieve our goal to release your fund to you, you are advised to reconfirm to us the below information to enable us to conclude this transaction with you. Your full name, your complete address, direct telephone number, mobile number, company name, occupation, nationality, 
Finally, your response to this email should be made immediately before it will be too late for you to receive your total funds. Waiting for your immediate response. Thanks for banking with J.P. Chase Bank. While we look forward to serving you better. Yours faithfully, David McKay, Chairman and CEO, J.P. Morgan Chase. A couple things I like about this email, Dave. Yeah. Number one, in the, section, in the subject section, beneficiary is misspelled. That's my favorite. Uh, also, the CEO of J.P. Morgan Chase is a man by the name of Jamie Dimon, or Dimon. Uh, I'm not okay. sure which way you pronounce it. One M, so probably Dimon. Uh, uh-huh. David McKay, uh, I just did a quick Google search on David McKay. The only thing that comes up is the uh, pitcher for the Oakland A's, uh, and, <laughs> and that's it. I don't, I don't okay. find any, anybody, David McKay, who is uh, financial. So a quick Google search will render this phishing email um, inert. But I think, like I, like we said before, that's kind of the the purpose, right? They want mm-hmm. people who aren't going to check it. They're just going to go, ooh, $10 million, sign me up. Um, right. And it's, of course, an advanced fee scam. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, thank you to John for sending that in to us. Uh, we would love to hear from you. Our email address is hackinghumans at thecyberwire.com. All right, Joe, I recently had the pleasure of speaking with Ari Parker, uh, co-founder and head Medicare advisor of an organization called Chapter, and our conversation centers on Medicare scams. Here's my conversation with Ari Parker. Medicare is a federal government health insurance program, typically for people who are 65 years and older. This is the most vulnerable population. Seniors are especially vulnerable to scammers because scammers are attuned at targeting the elderly. They're typically more vulnerable and less comfortable using technology than people who are millennials, let's say. So as someone comes into being eligible for Medicare, um, what is that transition that happens? Like, you know, I, I haven't reached that age myself yet, and I'm sure imagine some of our listeners have, but many have not. Uh, is it a kind of thing that automatically kicks in for people? Great question. You can get Medicare in one of three ways. The first is automatically. If you're taking Social Security before the age of 65, then you'll receive your red, white, and blue card three months before the month in which you turn 65. The second way is by applying for it. Typically, if you're not working or you're working part-time, then starting Medicare is the best option to provide for your health care expenses. You would apply through the social security website, it takes less than five minutes and the government will send you your red, white, and blue card. Your Medicare will begin the month you turn 65, unless your birthday is on the first day of the month. The final way is if you're still working and you want to keep your work insurance past the age of 65, then you can remain on your work coverage so long as your employer has 20 or more employees. When you're ready to retire, You would then alert Social Security that you intend to enroll in Medicare, and you'll receive a special enrollment period to start Medicare. So what sorts of things are are out there that people should be aware of? There there are three types of scams that seniors should be aware of. The first is a scam that offers free Medicare in exchange for your Social Security number or your Medicare beneficiary ID. When you start Medicare, the government sends you a card that has an 11-character unique Medicare identifier. Scammers will try to get this number 
so that they can bill Medicare. Sometimes the scammers send you the piece of medical equipment. Other times they don't. The thing is, they don't really know whether you need the equipment or not. It's fraud. The second type of scam is an email phishing scam where where scammers will put up a fake page and have seniors click through in order to provide information about themselves. And then the final type of scam is that scammers will try to acquire seniors' bank account information and commit wire fraud. Now, is this, is it a situation where the scammers will try to, uh, you know, get to these seniors before the government does? Knowing what kind of schedule that the government is on, will they try to reach out before the government gets to them and, and pretend to be the government? Absolutely. What scammers will do is they'll set up a website that appears to be Medicare.gov, but isn't in fact Medicare. They'll also call seniors and say that they're representatives of Medicare, but Medicare will hardly ever call you. In fact, they say that outright on the government website that they don't typically call beneficiaries. Now, in terms of the beneficiaries themselves, are they liable for any of the things that the scammers do here? If you know, if someone sends me a, a piece of medical equipment in, in a fraudulent kind of way, could I be on the hook for that? Yes, you would be on the hook for up to 20% of the medical equipment that the scammer sends you if you're just on original Medicare. The reason why is because Medicare is 80-20 coinsurance. The government covers 80% of your Medicare. You're responsible for the other 20%. So what are your tips here? I mean, what are the, the, the advice that you have for seniors uh, in terms of protecting themselves against these specific scams? Three tips. The first is to watch out for free Medicare offers. This will typically, what, what recently skip bammers have been advertising is an offer for free medical supplies. And they might say that Medicare will cover it without asking you whether you actually need it or have a, medic, a medical condition that qualifies you for it in the first place. They'll then ask for your social security number or your Medicare number. Don't share this information. The second type of scam that we've seen recently is ones that say that people are eligible for a refund. How this works is that they'll say there's been a change in your Medicare coverage and that you're therefore eligible for a refund on your Medicare. And then they'll reach out to you as representatives of Medicare typically. The third type of scam is email phishing. And here, spammers will set up fake email addresses or even fake websites that appear to be Medicare-related or Medicare itself. And then they'll ask for your social security number your Medicare number. Sometimes they'll even ask for your bank account information in order to withdraw funds. Don't give out this information over the internet. You know, I, I can imagine a lot of this being very confusing, you know, for the folks who are in good faith trying to take advantage of their Medicare benefits. You know, I just, I see all sorts of things on TV that say, you know, if you have this condition, if you need a some sort of a, a, assistive device, a wheelchair or a cane or, you know, there are all sorts of things you see ads for. And they say you may be eligible for this at no cost to you. I, I suspect there are companies who are legitimate when it comes to this thing, but I could see it being confusing for the folks out there who are just trying to, to take advantage of this and, and get on with their lives. That's right. It is absolutely confusing, Dave. I, I, I don't, I can't tell you enough how many emails we get with direct mailers that people are sent asking, is this legit? Should I respond to this? When in fact, it's a piece of, it's a piece of spam. Or 
in the fall, when you see advertisements on television about different types of plans, you don't know if the plan is suited for you or not. That's not to say that the advertisement is a scam, but it's confusing and it creates complexity around something that seniors really need in order to protect themselves and gain peace of mind over their health care coverage. What about Medicare itself? I mean, do, do they provide resources to help guide folks through this and, and help them steer away from some of these scams? Dave, there's no website Medicare has set up that identifies whether a specific scam is legitimate or not. What I can say here is that if it feels suspicious, then don't respond to it. If someone calls you and asks for your social security number or your Medicare number, then don't just hand it out over the phone. Scammers are trying to get three pieces of information out of seniors, typically. They're either trying to get their social security number, their Medicare number, or their bank account information or a credit card. If it feels suspicious, don't respond to it. Don't go any further in a conversation if someone calls you and it feels suspicious. And if someone says to be a Medicare representative, then that should be a red flag if they're calling you. Medicare typically doesn't call you. You call them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And would it be uh, fair to say that if you're suspicious of something that, uh, that you should hang up and, and if you need to contact Medicare, then you reach out to them? That's exactly how it works. Medicare has a 24-7 hotline. They're not difficult to reach. People typically wait on the phone less than 10 minutes. They actually have an excellent support department. Joe, what do you think? Two things that Ari talks about that make seniors more vulnerable as a population. Uh, Number one, there are a higher proportion of seniors who are not like digital natives, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Dave, as you and I move towards this realm, it's it's a lot closer than you think. Let me let me put it to you this way, Dave. <laughs> Do you remember graduating from high school and college? Yes. Yeah. Retirement is closer, Dave. <laughs> ah, okay. Very nice. <laughs> Retirement is closer. Thank you for uh, that. So, yeah. Uh, you know, and I would say that you and I are probably digital natives of the earliest breed. Uh, yeah. But- Do you remember when we were young and we were playing with computers, there weren't a lot of people around doing that. So people our age are still not as familiar with computers as, uh, as like you and I are, or more importantly, our kids. So hopefully as the population continues to age, this will become less and less of a risk factor. The, Mm. uh, digital, uh, nativeness, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but the more important factor here of these two factors is that, These scammers are skilled and make an effort to target older people. And that is never going to change. It doesn't matter what the technology is. The the targeting for the people, the the age population, is always going to be the same. They're going to try to scare the crap out of these people uh, and or 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 offer them something that they think they might be able to get for free. Uh, And and those kind of scams are pretty much always going to be effective. Uh, even if they have to walk away from the the digital the digital aspect of this scam, hmm. there are a lot of scams out there based on Medicare, including fraudulent billing, uh, identity theft, which is where they're going to try to get you to enter a bunch of information, including your Medicare uh, information, your Social Security information, and then just straight up theft, where they ask you for your bank account information. Hey, you need to pay for your twenty percent of this this item, uh, and then you give them your bank account or credit card information, and they just take the money and run. Hmm. Uh, 
These scams all sound very familiar. And if we're lucky enough to live long enough to be on Medicare, we're all going to have to contend with these scams. Uh, and they're pretty familiar, familiar sounding for, to listeners of this podcast. Free Medicare offers. No, probably not. Uh, Medicare is an 80-20 split. Uh, a refund? Really? No, not really. Uh, <laughs> remember that, that uh, I think it was a Tostitos commercial from the 90s with Chris Elliott and the IRS. <laughs> I, I, that's what I think of when I think refund. Uh, fi and phishing, phishing links with fraudulent sites. Those are, I don't know, there's got to be, uh, there's going to be a technical solution to this eventually. I'm hopeful of that. But it, until there is, we're still going to have to deal with phishing links. Uh, yeah. Email is awful and we need a better solution. Although I have no idea what that is. So I, I'm, I get to play my grumpy old man card here, Dave, and just complain about the current state without offering any solutions. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, there is no website or tool that tell, that will tell you if the uh, offer you're currently experiencing is a scam. You just need to be cautious. And again, never give out information on an inbound call. Here, you have to be careful that who you're calling is also bona fide because of two things. There are two things I want to talk about here. We actually had a listener write in about this uh, recently saying that when I call, when I get the inbound call, sometimes I say, I want to call you back. And they go, well, there's no way for you to get back in touch with me in particular, mm -hmm. right? At the, at the customer service and, the, and these companies, uh, I understand that they, they, they don't have any way to do it, but you know, I, I still say, okay, well, what is this regarding? And I'll call back and talk to someone in your customer service organization. It may not, may not be you, but they should have access to it as well. Uh, so I still say give them a call back, even if you may not get the same representative. Uh, and the other uh, the other thing is that these emails that we get or these websites that we get are are asking us to make the outbound call. And if we make the outbound call without verifying that call, just like our uh, our listener who provided feedback earlier today. Uh, earlier in this episode, he he made the call and, and got suspicious. And as soon as he started getting requests for information that didn't seem legit, he was like, nope, nope, I'm thinking I'm going to make the make the call to the to the actual number. So, right. um, you know, it's it's kind of difficult. I mean, it's just, these guys are just making it more and more difficult for people just to get the the services to which they're entitled. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, again, our thanks to Ari Parker for taking the time for us. We do appreciate it. That is our show. We want to thank all of you for listening. We want to thank the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute for their participation. You can learn more at isi.jhu.edu. The Hacking Humans podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie. I'm Dave Bittner. And I'm Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for listening.